Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, America's culture of tipping service workers stems from an unpleasant history. And according to our guest, it's left millions in the food industry struggling to make ends meet. She wants to change the laws about the tip wage. But first, breakfast is said to be the most important meal of the day, and a new study by the Rudd Center at UConn bears this out. In fact, it finds that school kids who eat two breakfasts are actually less likely, likely to experience unhealthy weight gain than students who skip the meal altogether. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter. Joining us first is Dr. Marlene Schwartz, who's director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at the University of Connecticut. Thanks for joining us once again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So why don't you tell us about the study? What age group did you focus on? So this study was following a group of middle school students, so from fifth through seventh grade, and we were interested in seeing how their breakfast eating patterns correlated with their weight change over time. And one of the concerns has been um, in terms of promoting the school breakfast program was that some children might end up actually eating two breakfasts, one at home and one at school. And there'd been some worry that that might be associated with weight gain. So what we were able to do was follow this group of students and figure out who was skipping breakfast, who was eating breakfast just one place, and who was actually eating breakfast at both places. And what we found was kind of surprising, that the small proportion of students who were eating two breakfasts were actually less likely to be overweight than the larger group of students who were skipping breakfast altogether. It's fascinating and probably something that a lot of people who who study this like you do are saying, well, this makes a lot of sense. And before we get into those details, why this age group? What, why, what is specific about ages, you know, grades five to seven? Well, one thing about that age group is they are becoming more independent. And unfortunately, one of the things we actually saw was the rate of breakfast skipping increased during that age group. So we would like to figure out ways to prevent that from happening and to ensure that children through middle school and high school are still eating breakfast. So did you target a specific community as well? What else can you tell us about these particular uh, middle schoolers? Sure. So this study was done in New Haven. So these were students from 12 middle schools in New Haven. And it's actually part of a larger study where we've been watching um, a group of students go through the middle school and seeing how their weight changes and how it's associated with different environmental factors in the schools. This sort of issue has been studied before, whether or not skipping breakfast uh, can can cause weight gain. What, What makes this a little bit different? Well, I think we were the first ones to really look specifically at the school breakfast program and to try to address this policy issue because there had been some debate in the field about how hard we should be pushing school breakfast. And that's why we felt like this was a really important policy issue to answer so that people could rest assured that you weren't going to put children at risk of additional weight gain if you really promoted school breakfast. So the school breakfast program that you're talking about, I mean, who all is this available to? I remember when I was going to school, we didn't get breakfasts where I went. There's an awful lot of schools that provide breakfast for some students. There's some schools that provide breakfast for every student. Well, what can you tell us about the school breakfast program? Sure. So the school breakfast program is smaller than the school lunch program. Um, and it has been growing, though, in recent years. I think historically the school breakfast program was really about reaching students who uh, qualified for free or reduced price lunches. 
um, which is the case in New Haven. But the truth of the matter is that nowadays a lot of people don't have time to eat breakfast in the morning. Schools start early. Kids are getting on a bus early. So we really feel that it's important to have breakfast available at school because it's going to increase the chances that the child is eating breakfast at all. I want to bring in Lonnie Birch, uh, who is a registered dietitian. She's also school nutrition program director for the Hartford Public Schools, president of the School Nutrition Association of Connecticut. And Lonnie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So are you surprised at all by these findings? Uh, No. Actually, I'm quite pleasantly happy to hear about these findings because it has been the issue of if you're doing breakfast at school, is a student getting a second breakfast and do we need to be concerned about the obesity? And so I'm really glad to hear that um, the study shows that that's not something that we need to be concerned about. And um, as the study showed, there are skippers of breakfast, and I think that's really what, as a school nutrition professional, I really want to focus on and figure out how am I going to get those students to eat with me or at home, but they need to eat breakfast, and that's the most important piece here. So uh, one of the things that uh, I do, and if you've been on the program before, you know that when we're we're checking uh, our guests' mic levels beforehand, this is something NPR has been doing for a long time, I'll ask what did you have for breakfast today? And people give me all sorts of answers. And I, I realize that unlike other meals, breakfast for, for different people and certainly different kids is a, is a variable thing, right? I ask some people what they had for breakfast. They say nothing. I ask some people what they had for breakfast. They say yogurt with some blueberries. And some people say, you know, two fried eggs and a side of bacon and some toast. So, Lonnie, when you're talking about breakfast for most of the kids, either in the study or most school kids that you deal with, like what is breakfast? So a school breakfast is going to consist of a whole grain, one or two options of a whole grain. It's going to consist of a low, uh, a lean protein such as a yogurt or a cheese stick. It's going to have fruit, fresh uh, fruit juices. It's going to have milk, choices of milk in the low-fat category. So overall, a school breakfast is going to have uh, be much more nutritionally sound than certainly if you go and get donuts. If you ask somebody they had that yogurt and a blueberry today, I'd be very happy, and I would be very happy with the person who ate the um, toast and eggs and bacon because I think the eggs are a really good source of protein. I'm hoping that toast was whole grain and that it was only one or two slices of bacon and that wasn't the majority of the plate. <laughs> so the school breakfast really is trying to follow very strict nu- nutritional guidelines. Is the school breakfast up to the same par across Connecticut or the school districts that you that you follow as as school lunches? Is it essentially equal in its nutritional value? Yes, it's not equal in regards to calories because breakfast is only one quarter of your daily intake. And so, but yes, all school meals, whether they be lunch, breakfast, or now there are at-risk supper programs, need to meet the dietary guidelines for Americans. And that's a that's a key factor in how these meal programs run. And again, that's about whole grains, lean proteins, low fats. We have specific guidelines both at breakfast and lunch that need to be met. So, Marlene, how did you uh, address this in your study? Obviously, if you've got kids who are maybe eating two breakfasts a day, one at home and one at school, you know what's happening at school? You know what's happening at home? Well, we actually don't know what the students were eating at home. That wasn't one of the things that we assessed in the study, but we did know what they were eating at school. And as we just heard, the school breakfasts, have always met certain nutrition standards, and actually since the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, eat meat, meet even stronger nutrition standards. So we were very confident that the students that were eating breakfast at school um, were getting a healthy breakfast. So talk about the, the biology of this. I mean, why does this, does this happen? I mean, if, if we have kids who are eating a breakfast at all, even maybe eating a couple of breakfasts, how is this manifesting itself in less weight gain over time? You, you figure you take in more calories, maybe, maybe you'll gain weight. Why is this, uh, why is this non-intuitive? 
Well, it is a mystery. And the finding of the association between skipping breakfast and being at higher risk for obesity has been in the literature for a long time. And there are a few different theories. One is that if you skip breakfast and then you don't have a chance to eat until later, you're starving. And when you're really, really hungry, you often make poor choices. You might take really large portions because you're so hungry and you end up actually eating more later. There's also theories about metabolism, that your metabolism needs to get started in the morning and eating is one way to do that. Um, in our study, the students that tended to eat the double breakfast, which as I mentioned, wasn't that many, it was eight to 10% of the students were often boys. And so I have a theory that adolescent boys need a lot of calories. And because that second breakfast was maybe a piece of fruit, a yogurt, and um, you know some whole grain, that's a pretty healthy, even large snack for an adolescent boy. So my guess is that was part of what was just helping them eat healthy throughout the day, and they were probably less likely later, I would hypothesize, to overeat unhealthy foods. Lonnie, does that sound right to you? That sounds exactly right to me. And the thing I'd like to point out is if they ate a breakfast at home and then they came to school and ate a breakfast, it wasn't at the same time. So there's a block of time between the time they ate at home, they got to school, and now they've had that second brother. So it's breakfast, so as Marlene has pointed out, it's almost like a, an enhanced snack. So, you know, there are different theories of eating, and one of them is to have small, frequent feeds throughout the day. And so six meals, smaller meals per day, for some people works really well, and I agree with that. If it were boys, they may want that extra set of calories. I, I'm wondering, and by the way, we're talking with Lonnie Bird, who's a registered dietitian and the School Nutrition Program Director for Hartford Public Schools. Marlene Schwartz is here. She's director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy. We're talking about a new study having to do with school breakfasts, how important they are, important to help kids from gaining weight, actually, which, again, as we're talking through, maybe sounds non-intuitive, but a healthy breakfast is, is well, the start of a very good day. Um, you talk about theories of eating, though. Do you think, Lonnie, that the, the various theories of how you're supposed to consume calories throughout the course of the day, that those really are being taken into, in, into account during a normal school day? I mean, some people say snacking throughout the course of the day is actually the best way to do this. You you mentioned, uh, Marlene, earlier what happens with, you know, young boys. For me, two breakfasts was the bare minimum, right? I mean, I would eat like four breakfasts and then three lunches. So I'm wondering if you feel like school nutrition programs um, are keeping up with the various ways in which people might need to consume food over time to, to be healthy, especially at that age. Well, I definitely think that, especially because the whole new Hunger for Health Kids Act allows us to, requires us to meet, you know, stricter nutritional guidelines than they did even 10 years ago. So as a dietitian, that's probably the most proudest thing I am in my profession is that we have really come to where we should be and what school nutrition is about, which is about the national security and safety of our country. It came out of World War II recruits who couldn't pass those exams. And that's still happening today, only now it's not nutritional deficiencies. It's based on obesity. And we need to, as a country, address that. Um, and I do believe that school meals do um, allow for students who have different types of eating patterns. And so small, frequent feeds may work for someone, for somebody like you who needed those four breakfasts because you were a large athlete who needed to do a lot of activity. I think we have those abilities to uh, meet the needs of all students. You don't need to take all the components that are offered. You need to take a minimum. And so the larger eaters can take more food than the smaller eaters and still meet their needs. And I think that's really important to understand about school meals. I, I was an athlete only in the sense of I, I was an Olympic-level uh, eater. I was exceptional <laughs> at eating. But I, do, do you feel like we're, we're on the right track here? I mean, these, these new guidelines certainly make sense. Um, we've talked in the past, Marlene, about whether or not school lunches are doing what they're supposed to do, whether or not school breakfasts are doing what, what they're supposed to do. There is still this stigma amongst American 
uh, school kids that they're eating, you know, tater tots and French fries and pizza and all sorts of stuff that doesn't actually uh, bode well for their for their weight gain over time. I mean, do you think that we're on the right track? I think we are definitely on the right track. I think there's been a huge effort in the last three years to really, really focus on improving the nutrition quality of what's in schools. And here in Connecticut, we've actually been ahead of the curve because as a state, we took out the sugary drinks 10 years ago. And we started really looking at the competitive foods, which are the foods that are sold outside of the meal programs, and those have gotten progressively better. Interestingly, nationally, the rest of the country has now caught up with us in having stronger standards for competitive foods. But from my observation, some of the healthiest districts are the ones that actually don't sell competitive foods at all. So, the- Say again what competitive foods are. These, are. these are things that kids can buy to supplement their lunch? Exactly. So in some school districts, they might sell... Um, ice cream or some sort of chip or something like that to have in addition to the school meal or even instead of the school meal. And the district where we were studying, New Haven, actually doesn't sell any competitive foods. So it's pretty much the school lunch is the only thing there. And what's great about the new standards is that fruits and vegetables are unlimited. So if you do have a child that you know has a higher caloric need, they can take two or three pieces of fruit um, and have that as part of their meal. So it's a big difference between being able to take an extra apple and orange versus buying potato chips or ice cream. What can you tell us about the breakfast eating habits of kids this age in uh, cities like Hartford, New Haven versus maybe suburban school kids? I mean, do you know that there's something substantially different happening in different parts of our state in terms of how kids are eating breakfast? That's a fascinating question. Um, I don't have data on breakfast consumption across the state, but my guess would be that the students who are in districts that actually provide breakfast, and particularly if they provide it in the, cl- in the classroom where they have grab-and-go breakfast, are probably eating more breakfast at higher rates than students in districts that don't offer that. Does that sound right, Lonnie? Absolutely. I'd have to agree with that 100%. Uh, we're talking with Lonnie Burt, who's a registered dietitian, also school nutrition program director for the Hartford Public Schools. Dr. Marlene Schwartz is here from the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy. We're talking about the importance of a healthy breakfast for school kids. When we come back, we're going to be checking in with the state of West Virginia. It actually does very well in studies like this. Uh, if you want to join us, you can always find us on an email, where we live at WNPR.org, Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, an effort to end tipping in restaurants. That's at the state legislature, and we'll be talking about that in a moment. Right now, we're talking about a new study from the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. Marlene Schwartz is there, uh, and she's with us today. Lonnie Burt is a registered dietitian, also with the School Nutrition Program uh, for Hartford Public Schools. And we're talking today about the importance of a healthy breakfast at school, maybe before school. We're really finding it helps kids keep off weight. I want to bring into the conversation Rick Goff, who's executive director of the Office of Child Nutrition at the West Virginia Department of Education, to find out what's been happening in that state. Rick, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. West Virginia has some of the best breakfast participation rates in the entire nation. What have you been doing there that's so effective? Well, we've done several things. We try to maximize all the options available to get the participation up. Several years ago, we piloted the community eligibility option with USDA, so that has helped where all children that participate in low-income areas participate in breakfast and lunch at no additional charge. In 2013, we had a state law pass 
Senate Bill 663 that created the West Virginia Feed to Achieve Act, and it mandated the breakfast strategies here in West Virginia. The problem that we were seeing prior to the Feed to Achieve Act is that breakfast was being offered at the worst possible time of the day. We had breakfast programs in every public school in West Virginia, yet our participation was hovering around 28 29%, while our needy children rate was at 60%. So we weren't even meeting the needs of our hungriest kids. So what we found is it was an access problem. So the state law mandated in every school in West Virginia that we move breakfast so that it didn't compete with the startup of school. And we basically did that with three options, the grab-and-go breakfast, breakfast in the classroom, and breakfast after first period. Then we started to see the needle move. And our participation rates have, have just gone up and up and up. And for the first time in history, and I've been doing this for a while, we have school districts whose breakfast participation rate annually exceed that of lunch for the first time. So, so when you say you were offering it at the worst time of the day, what was that worst time that was traditionally in West Virginia schools? Well, breakfast typically is offered at the start of the school. When the buses are arriving, kids are getting there late, they want to talk to their friends, the tardy bells ringing, and it was, was basically wasn't being utilized because kids weren't uh, willing to participate. They had their backpacks on, their coats on, and you had to rush in and compete with the bell. So we moved it to after first period, where you could have got your breakfast with the grab-and-go and take it into your classroom and eat it. And then at the elementary level, in a lot of school districts, they do breakfast in the classroom. On average, 82% of all kids ate breakfast in Mason County. And that's mm-hmm. one of the highest in the, count, in the state. Uh, a lot, so it was just yeah. offering it at a different time and making access, focusing on access and making it more readily available to the students. Lonnie Bird, I'm wondering if you can weigh in on that and talk about some of those strategies being employed in Connecticut schools. He's absolutely right. It is about time. And when you have a, all of our breakfast programs in Hartford are, for the most part, before school starts and at the first sign of the bell, then the students do need to get to class. And so where we find our best participation rates are the schools that we're doing that. We either have the grab and go so the students walk into building, pick up their breakfast and go to the classroom, or they what we call a second chance breakfast. So they, we have breakfast open, they go to homeroom. If they haven't had breakfast, the teachers let them come down and get, enough, you know, get their breakfast and go back to class. And I think it's the delivery models that really make a difference in regards to how well your breakfast participation rates are and the busing schedule. So if you're on that bus and the class starts at 8 o'clock and your bus drops you off at 7.55 because you're the last bus, you're not going to have a chance to get breakfast before the start of the school day. So, so Rick, you're, you're able to get off the bus, grab something, go to the class, actually eat it, and be able to integrate into your school day but, but get something nutritious in you at the same time. Yes, sir. We we tried those three versions. And and the law basically said that, you know, breakfast and lunch is no longer an interruption to the school day. And and that's how it was viewed for years and years and years. And it's a vital, integral part of the instructional day. And, you know, you see all the benefits and the statistics associated with kids that eat breakfast, reduce absentees, reduce behavioral problems, fewer tardies, fewer trips to the school nurse, improved achievement. It was a no-brainer here in West Virginia. I would say in Connecticut also that um, we have allowed that breakfast in the classroom is part of instructional time. And when I go into classrooms, I see instruction happening. Teachers are working one-on-one with students at the board on some math problems. Students are reading. They're working on papers. So it's not a free-for-all. Well, and Marlene, obviously uh, combating childhood obesity is one of the things that you're working to make sure uh, the, the Connecticut is working out. But then there's these advantages Rick's talking about, better test scores, lower absentee rates. I mean, what, what, could, what can we know about how a healthy breakfast helps kids achieve, actually have a better time at school? 
part of it is that children are getting more nutrition. So the research showing the difference between someone who skips breakfast versus eats breakfast is they definitely are getting more of their nutrient needs met. And, you know, for any of us being able to really concentrate and pay attention, it's a lot easier when you're not hungry. And so some of it is just common sense that if children have had their nutritional needs met in the morning and they can focus on what's going on in class instead of counting the amount of time till they get to go to lunch, it's definitely going to improve their performance in school. Hey, Rick, before I let you go, looking at this West Virginia uh, Feed to Achieve Act, beyond just breakfast, you're looking to fill in gaps when kids are most at risk for proper nutrition. This is something we've talked about a lot here on our program before. You're talking about providing things for kids after school, on weekends, during the summer months. Can you talk that through a little bit and how that change has been made in West Virginia? Our office administers all those programs, the summer feeding program, uh, which is a safety net for kids during the summer months. The problem we have with that program here in West Virginia is we're so rural, we're so spread out. We have the sites that qualify, but in the summer months, it's getting the kids there. So we're trying to come up with innovative ways to increase participation during the summer months. As far as after-school hour programs, we do things like after-school snack, after-school suppers. We're trying to expand the reach of what we do. With the Feed to Achieve Act, it uses private-public donations uh, from the private sector that are tax-deductible to help meet the needs of those children when they're not in our care. It's when they're in our care that they're taken care of. When they're at school, we know they have access to breakfast and lunch. It's the weekends or the extended breaks that the kids are, are most at risk. So backpack programs and things of that nature are what we're trying to focus on. And that, that's really taken what we do to a new level, uh, focusing on the kids, say, during the Christmas break or spring break. I mean, teachers will testify that uh, there's a noticeable difference in the kids when they come back. And in West Virginia, you may have a week off for snow, and then your phone starts ringing the second or third day, and it's the parents wanting to open up the school so we can feed the kids, and it just it tears at your heartstrings. So we're trying to, to fill in the gaps during those times when they're not in our care, when we know they're at most at risk for proper nutrition. Well, well Rick, and I don't want to get all of our, our guests to weigh in on this because it's something that I've, I've certainly asked about before whenever we've talked about the role of schools in keeping our kids healthy. I, I've heard stories for years, Rick, in our state about kids whose last healthy meal was served at school on a Friday, and then their next healthy meal is their breakfast on a Monday, right? And that does break your heart. But I guess the question I have for you in West Virginia, maybe giving us a sense here in Connecticut how how you view it governmentally, is is this really the best role for schools? I mean, are schools the places that are supposed to be providing nutrition all summer long, on the weekends, after school? I mean, is this the most efficient way to deliver these really important healthy calories to kids, or, or should we be thinking of something better or different than what, what we're doing here? In West Virginia, we're trying to maximize the participation in those federal feeding programs that, that we administer. The summer feeding program is one. We have the child and adult care food program, which is another. But the reach of what we do in West Virginia extends way past the public school sector into private schools, residential institutions, child care centers, Head Start centers, summer feeding sites. Hunger is so prevalent, and it's alive and well, and lives side by side with childhood obesity. So it's a tough monster to tackle here in West Virginia. So I know that when they're in our care in West Virginia, the public schools are getting healthy, nutritious meals. We don't allow a la carte sales. We've taken steps to provide a a healthy learning environment by getting rid of the sodas. We just feel that when they're in our care, 
that schools are held to a different standard, and we try to do what's in the child's best mm-hmm. interest. Now, we have these other programs, these backpack programs that we're reaching out, and that's really grant-funded throughout the communities, but they're becoming more and more prevalent throughout the state of West Virginia because our needy rate statewide is around 60%. Will Rickoff, Executive Director of the Office of Child Nutrition at West Virginia Department of Education, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your stories. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Uh, Lonnie Bird, I'm wondering if you could just respond to my question there. It's a big policy question I've always had. We just have a minute or so left, but you know, is this the best way to make sure kids get healthy meals, delivering them through the school system? As somebody who has spent 30 last years doing this, I absolutely believe that. That's where the students are congregated. And so we have buildings. I have students. I have buildings in Hartford that have 1,200, 1,400 students in them. You're not going to find that kind of quantity anywhere else. And so I do believe that education is not just about books. It is about nutrition and lifelong healthy habits, and that is what our role is. And I think that it's just as important as being able to pass a test. Do you you have a thought on that, Marlene? I would agree. I think that schools are the center of the community, and it's where our children go, and it's where we as a community come together to think collectively, how can we make sure that this generation of children is healthy? I am a big believer in that role of the school, and I understand it's a burden. The schools are responsible for a lot, but I think that it's the most effective and efficient way to reach the maximum number of children. Do you have a next step in some of the things that you're studying? I mean, what are you looking at next in this in this world of school breakfast or, or health? school eating? Well, we're continuing to look at school wellness policies and trying to see how we can make those more and more um, effective and well implemented. And we also are very interested in looking at the child care setting, which is another place where as a community, you can come together and really provide a healthy environment for children. Dr. Marlene Schwartz is the director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. Thank you so much for your study and for joining us once again. Sure, thank you. Also, thanks to Lonnie Burt, who's a registered dietitian and the School Nutrition Program Director for Hartford's Public Schools. Thank you, Lonnie. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we're going to look at the American culture of tipping service workers. It stems from a nationally rather unpleasant history. That story coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, best-selling author and political scientist Jacob Hacker from Yale will take us through the rise and fall of America's mixed economy, the same economic model that brought on unprecedented levels of prosperity throughout the 20th century has since been rejected, let's say. That's coming up on tomorrow's show. Hope you can join us. Our next guest has emerged as a leading voice for American restaurant workers, a voice that has argued against tipping culture in favor of higher wages and better benefits for millions of servers nationwide. Saru J. Rahman is the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley, as well as the co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United. She was at the Connecticut State Capitol recently to talk about her new book called Forked, a new standard for American dining. She stopped by our studios while she was in town. Saru J. Rahman, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. First of all, why don't you tell us your story about how you got involved in this issue in the first place? Sure. Well, I'm an attorney and an organizer, and on 9-11, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One, called Windows on the World in New York City. And on that morning, 73 workers died on the morning of 9-11, and 250 workers lost their jobs just in that one restaurant. And I was asked to start a little relief center in the aftermath of the tragedy, initially to help the workers from Windows on the World and restaurants around the city get back on their feet. But what started as a little relief center that we called Rock, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, just after 9-11, has grown into a national organization now. Almost 15 years later, this is the 15th anniversary of 9-11 this year. Um, 
We now have 18,000 worker members, 175 employer members. These are restaurant owners ranging from Danny Meyer, Tom Colicchio, Alice Waters, all the way down to small mom-and-pop restaurants around the country, uh, and several consumers, all of whom have joined with us to demand better wages and working conditions in this industry. So how did it, how did it morph from something where mm-hmm. you were supporting the people uh, who suffered so, so terribly during 9-11 to this large national movement that took on a whole bunch of issues surrounding the restaurant industry? Well, it morphed so quickly because of demand. I mean, this is the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. It's over 11 million workers. One in 12 Americans works in the restaurant industry. Uh, We actually just made world history, becoming the first nation on earth in which we now spend more money on eating out than we do on eating at home. Um, And so congratulations, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) you know, huge industry, not going anywhere. And yet it happens to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. And so when you've got such a large industry with the poorest workers, with absolutely no union representation, less than 0.001% of restaurant workers are unionized, you're going to have a very large population of people demanding support and help, first all over New York City and then New York State and then all over the country, which is which is how we grew. And the larger we grew, the more we did research to understand how is it that you've got one of the largest and fastest growing industries proliferating the absolute lowest paying wages in the country. And it really is the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby uh, that we call the other NRA. It's the National Restaurant Association. They represent the Fortune 500 chains in the United States, and they've lobbied to keep wages as low as humanly possible over the last now 150 years. Is it fair to say that it's the largest and fastest growing industry in part because of those work rules that are in place, because of the way we pay? Um, I don't know if I would argue. I I would say it's the largest and fastest growing because Americans eat out more than anybody else on earth. The the rate at which we eat out is fast, has been growing faster than any other nation on earth. And I don't think that has so much to do with the low pay as it does with the fact that we tend to celebrate as Americans. We tend to celebrate almost every important moment of our lives in restaurants in ways that people in other countries don't. But And the reason I ask, though, is I'm wondering if the barrier to entry for restaurants as a business is, is more available. We're able to make more opportunities for people to eat out at a lower cost, in part because of the way we pay the workers at these restaurants. I guess you could argue that, but then what wouldn't fit that argument is the fact that the states and cities with the highest wages in this country have the fastest growing restaurant industries. So if you look at California, where I live, um, actually California has the absolute largest and fastest growing restaurant industry in the country. LA actually has a larger restaurant industry than New York City. It's the largest industry in the country. Uh, And yet we have the highest wages in the country. I mean, LA just went to 15. San Francisco's already at 15. Um, The state as a state does not allow for a lower wage for tipped workers. And faster job growth rate overall, higher restaurant sales per capita, and faster job growth rate among tipped workers in particular than Connecticut or almost any state on the East Coast. So I really think the growth in the industry in California and everywhere really is our, you know, our nation's um, obsession with eating out. In part, it's the amount that we work. We work more than anybody else on earth, and so we eat out also more than anybody else on earth. I don't think it's the fact that there are low wages. Uh, in just a moment, I'll have you explain for our listeners who aren't part of this economy a little bit better how it works. But why don't you take us through the history? I mean, how do we get to a place where we pay some people much lower salaries and expect that the tips that they make are going to make up for it? How do we, how do we arrive here, Sarah? Yeah, it's a great question and incredibly interesting. And I just found it out in doing research for this new book, Forked. 
which is that tipping actually didn't originate in the United States. It originated in feudal Europe. Um, you know, servants who received a wage were given a tip as a sign of noblesse oblige. It was set, certainly a vestige of the feudal system. Tipping came to the United States in 1850s and 1860s when rich Americans traveled to Europe and came back and tried to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And there was a massive anti-tipping movement in response, populist movement, late 1800s, early 1900s. Six states passed complete bans on tipping. They said it was un-American, undemocratic, feudal even. Uh, and yet two industries squashed that movement, the restaurant industry and the Pullman Train Company, both of which wanted the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And that idea that you could hire a black worker, former slave, and not pay them anything, basically a valueless person, and let them live on customer tips was codified into the very first minimum wage law that passed in 1938 as part of the New Deal, which said that tipped workers had the right to a $0 minimum wage and could earn the minimum wage entirely through tips. And we've gone from a $0 minimum wage in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour at the federal level, not that much higher, $6 here in Connecticut. So we've gone up two or at most $6 over a, almost a century. And over that century, the restaurant industry has essentially made the same argument for 100 years. They say these are wealthy white guys working in fancy fine dining steakhouses. There's no reason to pay them anything. They work, make a, mon- a ton of money in tips when, in fact, 70 percent of tipped workers in America and in Connecticut are women. They're women who work at IHOP and Denny's and Applebee's and Olive Garden. They're women who use food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce and suffer from poverty rates at three times the rest of the U.S. workforce, and worst of all, suffer from five times the sexual harassment rate of any industry in the United States. Because when you're a woman working at IHOP here in Hartford, you have to tolerate whatever a customer might do to you because a customer is paying your bills, not your employer. And so you have to tolerate all kinds of inappropriate customer behavior and walk a really fine line between pleasing the customer and doing things that feel scary and uncomfortable. How have things changed, though, over time? Have we gotten much further from those days of workers making absolute zero and getting tipped a little bit here and there? Have laws and safeguards been put in place as we've risen the wage up to, as you say, a whopping $6 in (laughs) some in Connecticut? I mean, how have things actually changed slightly for the better, if if at all? Yeah. So, well, there is a law that says that, federal law, that says that employers have to ensure that tips make up the difference between 603 and the regular minimum wage, uh, or at the federal level between 213 and the regular minimum wage. But the U.S. Department of Labor reports an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually ensuring that tips make up the difference. So I would say perhaps the way that things have gotten, quote unquote, better is that we certainly tip a lot better now than we did at the beginning of of the 20th century. But uh, workers being reliant almost entirely on tips hasn't gone away because $6, frankly, is so low of a wage that when you look at your pay stub as a server, it literally says this is not a paycheck because your wages are so low they go entirely to taxes, and you live almost completely off your tips. So because wages have not risen with inflation, I don't know that we're that much better off than we were 100 years ago, especially because the law that has passed in the interim, which says that employers have to ensure that tips make up the difference, are, is overwhelmingly not complied with. So it's not complied with. Even if it was in place, the real wages haven't risen anywhere close to inflation. So explain what you're here in Connecticut trying to do. I mean, what what would a standard that makes sense for you be? So seven states, including California, have completely gotten rid of this system. They have said California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Montana, Minnesota, and Alaska 
of all places. Seven states have said for the last several decades, actually, this industry just has to pay the same wage as every other employer, every other industry. Let tips be on top of that rather than in place of that wage. Uh, And those seven states are faring better on every measure than Connecticut and the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers. Higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the restaurant industry, higher job growth among servers, even higher rates of tipping. Can you believe it? The state that tips the best of any state in the U.S. is Alaska. Alaskans tip better than anybody anybody else in the country, and they've had the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. So nobody's arguing to get rid of tips. In fact, our proposals suggest even better tipping, but we, what we are suggesting is one fair wage, the elimination of the two-tiered wage system, have this industry do what every other industry has to do and pay a full wage and let tips be on top of that. Not everyone who is on this same side of the fight as you, though, says that tipping is something that should continue at all. I mean, there are some restaurateurs who say, we don't want tipping in our restaurants, period. We pay a very good wage. We pay above the minimum wage in our restaurants. We don't want people to be tipped. How do you fall on that question? So there are some of those restaurateurs that are doing it right. And one in particular is Danny Meyer. We've worked very closely with Danny Meyer over the last year. He, if you don't know him, he's the father of fine dining. He's written several books on the issue. He's really the standard setter in this country for fine dining restaurants. He's written a book called Setting the Table, which really is about setting the standard for this industry. So Um, We worked with him over the last year, and the way he eliminated tipping we think is right in that he did it in a very inclusive and transparent way in a way that made his workers whole. In other words, they're now getting through wages and revenue share everything that they would have gotten through tips now through wages and revenue share. And so in an instance like that, we are supportive because the employer is doing it right. They're guaranteeing that their workers will not lose any income. Uh, They're doing it in a very inclusive and transparent way. And uh, they're actually in support of legislation that would get rid of the two-tiered wage system. Danny Meyer's not fighting for legislation that would eliminate tipping. He's come out publicly in support of legislation that we call one fair wage, eliminating the two-tiered wage system, getting rid of that lower wage for tipped workers. We are worried that other employers will jump on the no-tipping bandwagon and not ensure that workers will get everything they would have gotten through tips. And in those instances, we're not supportive. What we want to make sure, as a restaurant workers organization, we want to make sure that workers ultimately are doing as well, if not better. And we think most workers will do better if they get a guaranteed base wage by their employer and let tips be on top of that. And as I've said, in the states that have this, tipping is better not worse. So then the next piece of this that an awful lot of public policy people will say is, well, you've you've already proposed changing the system for millions of, of people. Now there's the next stage. What do we do about the actual minimum wage? Because the minimum wage, even if it is for all workers across America, is still not even anywhere close to what it should be adjusted for inflation. So are you saying that Along with these changes, we need to go to something like a $15 minimum wage across America. Absolutely. I mean, uh, $15 is not even close to where the minimum wage would have been if it had gone up within. Where, where would it have been? It's closer to $18 or $19 an hour mm-hmm. um, at minimum. I mean, if it had gone up with productivity, it'd be closer to $21 an hour. So, you know, you're talking about $15 is the minimum we're talking about, and all of the proposals around 15 get us to 15 over five to eight years. We're not even talking about 15 tomorrow, which is where it actually should be given inflation. So we're talking about a very slow phase in, a dollar to a dollar fifty increase at most, and absolutely what you said is right. What we're fighting for is one fair wage, getting to something like 15 for everybody, tipped and non-tipped, everybody across the board. So, okay, I'm going to throw out a couple of the arguments that I know that you've heard and yes. we've, we've uh, talked about on our program before. One is 
you know, yes, it is true that not all waiters are rich white guys who work at steakhouses. That's not the workforce. We know that. But there are an awful lot of students. There are an awful lot of people who work part-time. There are people who don't make it their profession and are able to work in this business in part because of the way things are right now. Is there anything that you suggest different for summer help for students? You know, on the Connecticut shoreline, somebody who's worked at the clam shack for the last three or four years to make a couple dollars. Do they have to be paid in the same way? Do they have to be paid the $15 an hour that you're proposing? You know, here's the thing is, well, first of all, uh, <laughs> creating different categories of workers based on their age is flatly unconstitutional. It's age discrimination. But really, the thing is that this is a profession. This is a skilled profession. In other countries, you go to school for many years to be a hospitality professional. If we stop thinking about these jobs as throwaway transitional jobs and we start thinking of this as a profession that should be valued as a profession – then absolutely anybody who works in this profession should be paid a professional rate. And, you know, think about it this way. If you can imagine any other trade association uh, saying, oh, these our workers are not professionals. They are transitional. They are throwaway. You would think, what is wrong with this trade association? They should be trying to improve the professionalization of their industry. You've got an industry in which wor- workers for the vast majority – are adults. The median age in this industry is 36. A good 40% of these workers are parents. A good quarter are single moms. Um, These are adults with children. They take great pride in their work. Our research shows these workers stay for their lifetimes in this industry, even if they move from restaurant to restaurant, continuously seeking better wages and better opportunities. If they could stay in one place and grow, it would be better for all of us. It'd be better for the employers. It'd be better for the consumers. It'd be better for all of us. And so I think, yes, if this is a profession, everybody who works in this profession should be valued as a professional. And the only thing that I I hear over and over again is right now there are big holes in the job opportunities for college students and those who have recently graduated from college. And in many cases, the hospitality industry is the place where you're getting that job. And the question that, again, a lot of businesses will raise is, well, look, these are people who aren't expecting to make a career of it. They don't have two kids. They aren't trying to make a living beyond trying to pay the bills until they get to their next thing. Does does a plan like this, does it exclude people in that category? Absolutely not. I mean, what we're when we talk about a minimum wage, we're talking about entry-level wages. So... Absolutely. I mean, in any other, again, in any other profession, you've got entry level positions that young people can use as a stepping stone to something else. There are, there's lots of other ways in which this could be done, but minimum wages are entry level wages, and certainly people who've been around longer should get more than the minimum wage. You know, $15 is frankly not enough to live on in any city in the United States, but it's a bare beginning. And that's what we think should be the minimum for an even entry-level workers. We're talking with Sarah J. Raman, who is the author of Forked, a New Standard for American Dining. She's also director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. She's in Connecticut to talk about tipped wages here in the state, something we've talked about in the past. And it's fascinating to talk with you about. The last time we discussed this, actually, Sarah, I learned something that I had not learned, um, that we have different wage standards for workers with certain disabilities. And I'm wondering how that factors in. I mean, the, the, the argument is that there are some people in society who are not able to hold jobs that are held by 
what we, I, I guess I can euphemistically say, able-bodied people because of some physical uh, disability or other disability. Um, if not for a different wage standard, there would be no way to employ these people gainfully in many, many businesses. This is what I'm told. Um, how do you address this in your plan? Again, there are entry-level wages that I think should be applied across the board regardless of who's doing them. Anything else, to me, smacks of discrimination. And so, um, you know, if you've got entry-level jobs that are paid the minimum wage that can be done by disabled folks, I think they should be paid the minimum wage. I don't think that they should be paid less. I don't think young people should be paid less. People who make a career out of this industry, which, by the way, is the vast majority – should be paid more. The people in the Restaurant Association, are, and you, they've, you, they've said this to you for years, there's going to be massive layoffs. I'm not going to be able to afford people. If you want to cut jobs, sure, we can do that. We'll just, a lot of restaurants, restaurants will go out of business. I mean, this is something I know you've heard. What do you say when they, when they say this to you? I say, please come visit me in California <laughs> where the industry is booming. It is booming much faster than it is growing here in Connecticut. Uh, and the wages are much higher. And it's not just in high-wage places like San Francisco. It's in poor cities like Fresno and Bakersfield of, that also have $10 minimum wage for all workers, tipped and non-tipped. The industry's booming in those places as well. The industry's booming in Montana, which has the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers. It's booming in Anchorage in Alaska, which has the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers. The industry's growing everywhere and even more so in states with higher wages. And why is that? These workers are consumers, and they consume in the same restaurants that they work in. Is, is there a concern, though, you're talking about uh, California, Alaska, a place where it's expensive to do anything anyway, and there's a lot of tourists? Um, you know, Connecticut has a very high cost of living, and we have a very affluent workforce for the most part. It would seem as though Connecticut, the rest of New England, the Northeast, would be able to sustain the sort of thing you're talking about. Absolutely. There are parts of the country where the economy is not quite the same. The median income is not quite the same. D- does it work the same in Alabama and Mississippi, perhaps, as it works in California? I don't know that we're necessarily talking apples to, to apples here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but as I said, in each of these states, in California, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Montana, you've got very, very rural, very po- poor parts of these states, certainly Alaska. And so, uh, and as I said, the industry is booming even in the poor, poorer parts of those states, um, and in, and nowhere, by the way, I'm going to repeat this, but nowhere, including Alabama, Mississippi, anywhere, are we talking about going to 15 tomorrow. We're talking about phasing in these wages over a period of time. And frankly, food costs and rent costs have gone through the roof over the same period that wages have stagnated ridiculously. I mean, the tip minimum wage has not increased in this country in 25 years. And it's gone from zero to a whopping $2.13 an hour over 100 years. And so if restaurants have managed to stay afloat and continue to grow as food costs and rent costs have skyrocketed, you'd think a very slow, phased-in approach for wages could work. And it has in the states where it's gone up. So tell me about what it is you're here in Connecticut advocating for. I mean, what's what's the bill that is in front of the legislature now? So there has been a bill moving uh, through the Labor Committee um, that has proposed full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers, again, over time, phased in. That's that's the idea. We want that to move. We want the legislature, we want Connecticut to take leadership on the East Coast. There are a number of states and cities that are looking at this. There's le- legislation in New York and Pennsylvania. There's ballot measures moving in Maine and D.C. There's legislation in Massachusetts and uh, there has been in New Hampshire and Rhode Island. Um, 
definitely Maine will become the first state probably this November to eliminate completely by ballot measure the lower wage for tipped workers. We would love to see Connecticut take the lead, perhaps even beat out New York State in doing the right thing and following all the seven states that have already done this and eliminating the lower wage for tipped workers and getting rid of this legacy of slavery. A last question for you. How do they handle this in the rest of the world? Because, I, I, you know, we always talk about how America does things, and we then hear whether or not it has to do with our health care system or our military spending or something, that there's there's some other country somewhere that seems to have it all figured out, <laughs> and, we, and we haven't necessarily figured it out here. How does it work elsewhere? I mean, everywhere else except the United States pays a full wage to workers, and tips are on top of that. Uh, we are actually the only nation on earth in which the restaurant industry is allowed to pay almost nothing and expects the consuming public, we the consumers, to pay its workers' wages for them. So this is really important to note because there was an article last year in the New York Times about Denmark where the wage is $21 an hour for all workers, what they call front-of-the-house servers and kitchen workers and fast food workers. The Big Mac is literally 40 cents more in Denmark than it is here. So the threat around menu prices is not necessarily the truth. And they asked the operator of all the restaurants in the Copenhagen airport, why do you pay this wage? How do you manage it? He said, well, if I didn't, the workers would be living on public assistance, and that would be the sign of a failed society. Now, in the United States, we pay $16.5 billion annually in taxpayer-funded public assistance for restaurant workers alone. And so we are subsidizing this multi-billion dollar industry in two ways. We pay its workers' wages through our tips And we pay for its workers' survival through $16 billion of taxpayer money. And so you have to ask yourself, is this a sustainable business model that requires consumers and taxpayers to essentially fully support it, fully subsidize it through our dollars? Do you have a standard amount you tip people when you go to a restaurant? <laughs> I tip 20%, and I will for as long as workers rely on my tips as their wages, but I sure hope that won't be forever. Although I will continue to tip 20% forever, <laughs> I sure hope that they won't rely on my tips as the sole source of their income. Sarah, thank you so much for talking. Thank I really you. It. Sarah J. Raman is director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. Her new book is called Forked, A New Standard for American Dining. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Heather Brandon is the digital editor. And the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. You can continue this conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for joining us.